All right, let's turn together to Acts chapter 2. As you head that direction, um, in the month of August, just kind of going back through um, some of the some of the really key core ideas that drive what we're doing here at Living Hope. And um, there's a podcast that's very popular right now. A lot of people are listening to it. And it's talking about the the rise and the fall of one particular like mega church, but also how it's a much more broad uh, kind of a case study in what the last really twenty years have shown us in the American church. It's very interesting, and one of the one of the points that they made at some point was about there really not being uh, or like one of the things in a lot of these churches was this emphasis on like vision casting and they're always being like a vision for where we're going and all that kind of stuff. And, but the point being that Jesus has already given us a vision, you know, like we're not, we're not having to like come up with a vision for what to do here at living hope. We're just having to figure out what does God's vision for his church look like in our context. And that's what this month is about. Here are some of the ways that we feel like God's vision takes shape and form here in Baton Rouge through our congregation. And uh, I know that um, s- some of you grew up in church, some of you did not grow up in church, but I'm, I'm in the, some of you that did camp. And uh, church was always something that I, that uh, like we went to the same church. Uh, I felt a part of that church. It was always, there was always like a, an us, you know, kind of vibe to it for me. Um, but somehow I like missed along the way that we were doing something together, you know, like it felt like a family and all that kind of stuff. But I missed the, the fact that we're here to change the world, right? Like the gospel changes the world and that that's what we're there to do. I think for me, for a long time, it was like, we're here to worship and to be together and to encourage one another. Like a lot of the internal stuff but a lot of times I missed that like outwardness for, for some reason. I don't know how I missed it. It's not what. It's not that it wasn't taught. I just didn't grab onto it. And when I was twenty-two or twenty-three, uh, we had started this college ministry, and God was doing something unique, and we wanted to pay attention to it. And so between the fall semester and the spring semester, there's like a month, and so we took that month to. Uh, to not talk to one another as college students about it. We said for the next month, we're gonna, we're just gonna pray and ask God to speak to what we feel is stirring in our hearts. And, cause when we talked to one another, we kept getting each other all worked up. You know, you know how college students are. And so we got each other all worked up. And so we were like, hey, let's, we can talk about other stuff. But when it comes to what God's doing through this ministry, let's, let's just let Him speak to us for a month. We'll get together at the end of it and we'll compare notes and we'll see if we're on the same page. And it was about a 30-day period, so we call it 30 days of prayer. Because, as always, we're great at names. And uh, we just called it what it was. And we came together at the end of that month. And what we had done is we had all prayed and we had studied the book of Acts. Those are the two things that everybody did. And it was like, for, for me, like studying slowly through the book of Acts. With starting off with just, I had, a, I had my Bible, I had one of those uh, composition books from school, like the mar- black and white marbly like kind of things. And I had a composition book, and I would just write everything that stood out to me as I went through it really slowly. 
And then after I would spend time in a passage just asking God to show me stuff, then I would I had bought a commentary, it's my first commentary book on the book of it was on the book of Acts, where like some like people who actually know things about the Bible wrote some like additional thoughts and then Sometimes their thoughts lined up with mine, but most of the time it was all new information. I'm like, I didn't know that. I didn't see that. That's amazing. And so I have this composition book that I still have. I can't read it because my handwriting is terrible. Um, getting worse as our, as we write less, you know, our muscles are atrophying. And so, uh, but anyway, the, that to me was things just came alive and I began to realize that to be a part of God's church, is to be a part of a movement. And it is about bringing life to dead places. And God is doing that through creation and through the scriptures and through his people, like the transformation of his people. And we get to be a part of that. And it just it's like something just came alive for me. And that is when I became a huge believer in the bride of Christ in the church. And I get furious when people put the, put the church down. Uh, I understand that there are, are that there's a lot of baggage that comes with being like a part of the church historically and in our own day, and so I, that's not lost on me. But uh, there's some beauty here that Jesus not only sees but is committed to, and we are a part of that. And in reading the Book of Acts, something came alive in me and came in alive in that whole group of people. And I bet when you read it, it does the same thing because it, it reminds us of what, like, this is, this is what it looks like when the spirit just runs wild in people who are saying, would you run wild in us? You know, when we join God in what he's doing, that becomes like, there's nothing more important than that. And we see incredible things happen. And so in Acts 2, we're going to start in verse 42, but let me tell you what's happened up, up prior to this point, what this group of people has experienced. It's like 120 people. Most of them had been uh, witnesses, either eyewitnesses or just were in the area in the vicinity when this whole string of things happened. Okay, Jesus, uh, let's start the week before Easter. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, the triumphal entry. Everyone's going crazy thinking that he's the Messiah. He spends a few days um, like ministering and teaching and breaking hearts and uh, all that kind of stuff because they're like, wait a second, maybe he's not the one because he's not saying the things we want for him to say. And then on uh, Thursday night, he gathers his disciples into a room and he has one last meal with them. And they think it's going to be the Passover meal, but he actually does communion with them and says, hey, everything's about to change. Um, this is all going to be different. And he talks with them at some point that night in what we know as John 13 through 17 and the vine and the branches. And he talks about the Holy Spirit and, and all these incredible kinds of things. And he prays and you, you have this incredible prayer of Christ. Um, he goes to Gethsemane to pray by himself and he has this gut wrenching moment with the father, uh, where he asks God to, uh, if there's any other way, then, uh, let it happen. But it's not my will. It's your will. And God tells him no. And so if you ever feel like God's told you no, Jesus understands that. God says, no, this is the way it's going to happen. He's betrayed that night. He's uh, arrested. He's put on trial. He's found guilty on Friday. He's crucified. Friday night he dies. And he's buried. And on Saturday, this group of people has no idea what to do with themselves. And on Sunday, Mary Magdalene 
Verse 1 sees him. He's alive. Great news. It begins to spread that Jesus has risen just like he said he would. He's like, I don't know why you're surprised. I told you it's going to happen. It happened just like, just like I said it would. They are, it's just this incredible 40 day stretch of like trying to wrap their minds around what they've seen. Jesus preparing them for what's to come. We don't really know a ton about that 40 days. But at the end of it, he says, okay, now it's time for me to ascend so that the helper can come. The helper being the Holy Spirit of God. And he says, when the helper comes, it's going to get crazy. And it's never, ever going to be the same again. Jesus ascends. They go and they're in that same room where they were for the Last Supper. And they're praying. And the Spirit descends and lights them up, literally. And they're all praising and worshiping and in these different languages and you got all these thousands of people in Jerusalem that are like, Why are they, how, do they, how does that guy know my language? How does she know my language? How does that work? And so everything's going on. There's this incredible, like, miraculous moment of all these languages that are happening. And so then Peter, recognizing it, he stands up and delivers this incredible sermon. This is my summary of what he tells them. He says, yes, you've been waiting for the Messiah, and he, he came to you. But instead of following him, you killed him. But he's alive. And he's right now seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over the universe. And this crowd, terrified that they have missed the Messiah, they say, brother, what do do we do? And this is his response. He says, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a promise, and this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's not too late, because it's about your faith. Turn to him in faith. He will save you. He will fill you with his spirit. Not only you, but your kids. This is for everyone who is far away. This is this is an incredible moment of, of laying out the, this, the fullness of the gospel. And 3,000 people that day said yes to that invitation. So that church went from 120 to 3,120 or so uh, in, in, one, in one sermon, in one response. And so what, what happens when 3,000 people come to faith? What happens when that many people are filled with the Spirit and are recognizing the beauty of Jesus all, all at once? What do they do? What does life look like for this like small, huge, whatever you want to think of it, church? Well, the next paragraph describes what life was like for them. And this is a part of what grabbed a hold of me when I was 22 uh, and probably grabs a hold of you every time you've ever read it. This is what their life was like. Look at 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. See, what God was doing in their midst was the most important thing. Like God had made them a promise to them and their children and everyone who is far away. Everyone that he's calling to himself can be 
brought from death to life because they're being filled with the life of God. And they said, we believe that. And then it happened. So what do they do? What do they, what do you do? You give your entire life to this God who's doing this thing in your midst. That's what you do. They devoted themselves. N.T. Wright's translation of the New Testament says they gave full attention to these things. And that first sentence says that there were four things. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers. We'll talk about that in a second. But then the rest of the paragraph goes on to describe what a group devoted to those things, how it shapes their life. Look at the rest of the paragraph, starting at 43. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day. Those who are being saved. Now, don't raise your hand, but does anybody want to be a part of that? You know, like you read that and you're like, sign me up. And the thing is, like that, that's what God's doing here. That's what God is doing at all the churches. That that is that's what God is on board with. It's this kind of like transformation. This was not necessarily this like one-off kind of thing of like, well, that was for them, but this is now, and things are different, and blah, 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 blah. Why? Why? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to one another and to the breaking of bread and to prayer and to the kind of generosity and shared life that we see. It just made sense. It just was the outworking of those things. This is what this is the second part of the great commission this is what it looks like. So the first part is to be to go to all the nations and to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Like that's the there's that that's conversion. It's bring them from death into life. And then once they are alive, what does Jesus say to do? To teach them everything that he had taught the disciples to do. This is what was happening here. This is what making disciples of all the nations looks like in a practical sense. This is what we are, this is what we are about. This is what the church is doing, is we are teaching the things of Christ. And they did this by giving their full attention to f- those four things. It doesn't mean that those were, there were only four things. This is Luke's summary of what that looked like. Let's look at, let's look at those four and let's see the connection between them. The first thing that he, he says they gave their full attention to is the teaching of the apostles. And of course they did, right? Like, look, look at verse 43 again. All came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So, if you have this group of people who had been with Jesus, like they were like first generation, like one, like one to twelve uh, disciples of Jesus, and they're standing in front of you, that brings them a lot of credibility right off the jump. And... If through them, the power of God is performing these miracles, you're going to listen to them, right? You're going to pay attention to what they are saying. They have the most credibility in the whole room. So those 120 
originals. Then narrow it down to the apostles, okay? Uh, like the 11 who were, who were there at that point. Like that's a, that's a group that you would listen to. And they devoted themselves to what the apostles were teaching them. What were they teaching? Well, it would have been parts of the Old Testament. It would have, and it would have been everything that Jesus had to say. They're just passing along every, all the truth that they had up to, up until that point. And what is the equivalent for us? Well, it's this, this beautiful book that we hold in our hands. The Bible. We have, we have the, the completed work in our hands, at our fingertips. It's not just any old book. It's through these words that God tells us what's true and what's real about him, about us, about our world. It's how we know truth from lies. It's how we know who God is at all. It's how we're led into deeper truth. It's how we're corrected. It's how we're con- convicted. It's, it's how like God is using this all the time for our refinement. And he speaks through his word to us. And I know that the Bible gets a lot of criticism in our world. And there are people that are, have made it their life's mission to convince everyone that the Bible is just this antiquated Document that you'd be crazy to base your whole life off of. When I think about our college students who sit in classes where you have professors, that was their whole aim. I had a professor, and I took this religious studies class. He's the first thing out of his mouth. He said, The goal of this class is to prove that Jesus was just a normal guy and was not the Son of God. Okay, awesome. Tell me more, please. You know, didn't even like hold it out. Didn't even apologize. But then, through culture, we're constantly being like kind of this like subtle message of like, oh, the Bible. You know, those kinds of things, and made fun of because we base our faith and our lives on what is taught here. And we have to be honest that there are parts of the Bible that we we finite, limited people don't understand. I'll be very quick to admit it. And if someone is like, goes to the Bible and like circles a passage, is like, explain this to me. I, I have, I, I don't, there are parts where I'm like, I don't know. I, I don't understand that. Yes, there are gray areas in the Bible where our limited understanding, we're just not, we're just not smart enough to know how it all fits together. I've said this for a long time. There's a there's enough black and white, clear cut truth there to guide us through the gray. Is there some gray? Yeah. What's the majority? Super clear. Super super clear. I heard Vody Bauckham say this years ago. He said, "You find me another book that was written over a fifteen hundred year span." In three different languages, by three different uh, on three different continents, by forty over forty different authors, most of them who never met one another, and yet somehow it has one central theme from start to finish. When God writes a book, He doesn't just write any old book. This book is alive. The Spirit infuses it with 
power because it's he's able to he communicates through the words of God to us. And so yes, the Bible can be difficult. But the the beauty and the clearness of it far outweighs the difficult parts. And so you have this group of new believers who are looking at these apostles who are just passing on what Jesus told them. And they were fully given to what they were being taught. And so when we read passages like this in Acts and we're like, God, would you continue to continue this in our day? We have to have the like wisdom to know that being devoted to the word and the truth of God and living this out is going to be a part of that. And if you think that the word of God is optional to our, to your discipleship, then you need to read it more closely. Um, so if we want this kind of stuff to continue to happen among us and got to keep shaping us, we have to be willing to fully give our attention to the fact that God is in our midst being active and his word is one of the ways that's going to shape us and grow us. So they gave themselves fully to the apostles' teaching. The second thing it says they gave themselves fully to, that they devoted themselves to, is to the fellowship. And the fellowship, that that word uh, finds its origin in this concept of, of being shared, that this common life was there among them. Um, and look at verse 44, look at 44 and 45. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. See, in, the, in this situation, this all brought a lot of persecution upon them. And so there are people, all these 3,100, most of them do not live in Jerusalem. They've traveled in. And as they became a part of this new movement, it became harder and harder for them to get food and places to stay. And it, it started to create all this tension that was there. And so they had to take care of each other. It's just the way that it needed to be. And so they were together and their needs became known. And as their needs became known, they said, what, what can we do to meet these needs? And if it took selling your stuff, then you would just sell your stuff. Because what God is doing in, in, in our midst is more important than our stuff. We agree with that, right? What God's doing in our midst is more important than our possessions. It's more important than a lot of things that are on our lists of what is crucial in this moment. And so God's activity and joining it, him in it is of the utmost priority to them. And this is just how they lived. We see that kind of kingdom generosity at work throughout the book of Acts. There was a there was an open-handedness with their money and their time and their possessions and their just their very lives. And I remember as a 22-year-old who had nothing basically, you know, like you don't feel like you don't have anything to offer. And God starts to be like, "No, you have everything to offer." You're, 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 all of us, we're, we're gifted. We have time. We have attentiveness to offer. We have spiritual gifts to offer. We, we have things that we can offer others. We can sell things. We can give money. We can do, we can do things. This is not only about like you giving to others. It's also about being honest when you're like, I, I need to be on the receiving end at this point. 
As we all go through phases of life where we're able to give, and there are other phases where we need to be able to receive. And this requires not only generosity and open-handedness when you have stuff, but it also requires honesty when you need stuff. And apparently it was very safe in this community to admit when you needed something. Whether that was a tangible something or a prayer something or an encouragement something or a truth something, whatever it might be. And if everyone is living that open-handed life, then that shared common life together produces all the fruit that we see here. And they were committed to each other. That's part of what I love about, like, like sometimes I think like church membership is strange, you know, like why should you be a member of a church? You know, like it's Costco or something, you know, and it's like, no, this is about being a member is about being committed. Don't you love knowing that there are people committed to you? Don't you love being committed to other people? Like there's a security within those relationships. And you're like, okay, we've all put our hands in the middle and said, we're hanging in there together. We're sharing life together. People give financially to this church. All that money goes into a pot that goes to do ministry in a bunch of different ways because we have all put our hands in the middle and said we're going to share our money. We're going to share our time. We're going to share our our possessions. We're going to share the things that we're good at. We're We're going to share and be honest when we need to be on the receiving end. See, this this won't happen if we are materialistic and idolatrous with all our stuff. That's one of the ways the enemy loves to get in there, especially especially in a country like America. The enemy loves to get in there and convince us of certain things about our stuff. And you read this and you're like, oh yeah, my money's not mine. It's all God's. He's... He just entrusted me with this amount of it. Oh yeah, my vehicle, it's not my vehicle, it's really God's vehicle because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So it's really his that he's letting me be a steward of, so I need to be sure I use that for good things. And you just apply that logic to anything in your whole life. It's just a reminder that God is really, really big and he trusts you a whole lot. And sometimes maybe you wish he trusted you a little less or a little more, but that's how this whole thing works. And so this kind of generosity, if this is what we're wanting, like if we're wanting God to keep connecting us to one another on this level in this kind of way, we, we have to be committed to each other to do that. We have to be devoted to the fellowship. And what God's doing among us has to be of incredible importance. And so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship. And the third thing is to the breaking of bread. Look at verse 46. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Okay, so this is one of the places where those, that little Acts commentary was real helpful to me back in the day and continues to be. Um, because breaking of bread could kind of mean one of two things, and most of the New Testament scholars would say that it actually means both of these two things. Uh, breaking of bread can mean communion, and it can mean supper, right? So it can mean communion in the sense that Jesus told the disciples, uh, every time you like, like you continue to take this meal and you do it in remembrance of me, 
and uh, like like until I return, like you're celebrating my death and my return. And so like he told them to do that. And if you've ever you know anything about the Jewish community, they're like super literal. So he said to do this and to keep doing it. And so they, being of Jewish heritage and being very literal, did it every time they were together. Every time the church gathered for worship, which was daily, they got together and communion was a part of that. And remember pre-COVID and we had communion was a part of all of our gatherings. That's a part of where that comes from is that there's always tremendous goodness in, in watching and hearing and being a part of the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you, for that being a part of our gatherings. And I don't know how that fits back in with COVID and we'll figure that out. Jesus is gracious in that, but that's where that comes from. That Christ-centered meal and that concept also was a part of when they just had supper together, when they just broke bread in their homes, they had people over for dinner. That as they're sharing dinner together, there's a Christ-centeredness about that gathering. Have you ever had dinner with other believers and the conversation is completely Christ-centered. You're talking about Jesus and what he's doing and all this kind of stuff. It, it's incredible. On the other end of the spectrum, you ever gather with other believers and Jesus comes up not one time, like zero times? Or maybe you talk about church, but you don't talk about Jesus, you know? See, for them, they were devoted to the breaking of bread in terms of Christ-centeredness, where Christ was going to be the center of the communion table and the dinner table. Not to say that you can't talk about other things around the dinner table, but like that's a like in the first century world, there was no there's no more intimate gathering for friends than to share a meal. And so the Christ-centeredness of our relationships, that's what is being talked about here. The cross is a completed work in our lives and how that works itself into even the everyday things like meals. They enjoyed their food with glad and generous hearts. And they were devoted to this. They're saying, we're not, we're not going to break bread unless Jesus is at the middle of it. Whether it's communion or it's a Tuesday night. We want God to keep forming this, shaping us. This is going to be a part of it, that cross-centeredness. The fourth thing it says they were devoted to is the, the prayers. I always found that interesting that it's not prayer, it's the prayers. I haven't found a great answer to that. If any of you biblical scholars know why it's plural, let me know. Here's my guess. If you're Jewish... You grew up praying the scriptures. Um, if you like, in our tradition, we pray as we feel led to pray. We see that throughout the New Testament. We see Jesus doing that. You you pray for what's going on. You pray for the situation at hand, whatever it might be. Um, a little more like jazz improv kind of like prayer, right? If you're Jewish, you prayed the scriptures, and their reasoning is because their words are not going to be better than God's words. That's an airtight argument right there, for sure. And so this group of 3,100, they were all, they were Jewish, and now they're 
Christians, they're having to learn how to pray. They're having to learn this, this new idea that your relationship with God is a child to the Father. Go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father, who is unseen yet knows everything that you need. That's what Jesus taught them. And so they're having to learn how to do the prayers. They were devoted to communicating with God. That's what prayer is. Prayer is you're telling God something. You're asking God something. You're recalling something to God. You're you're reminding God of something. Not because he forgot, but you're letting him know that you did not forget. You're you're just you're communicating. You're sending him a message. That's what prayer is. Sometimes we have this pressure with prayer that we have to also hear back, you know? As if it's like a dialogue and then we're like, oh, I don't know, I didn't hear anything, I'm not sure. And, and you feel like you did it wrong and then suddenly prayer becomes a thing you don't know how to do so you just don't do it. But see, prayer in the Bible is never about receiving, it's about sending those messages. It's, it's, we're, we're lifting up our prayers, we're, we're lobbing these, these ideas and these requests and these different things to God. That's communicating to him. Him communicating back is in a, is in a different category. And so there's no pressure to hear back with prayer. That's why you can just pray everywhere that you go all the time. You can pray without ceasing. You can constantly be communicating with God. And they were devoted to this, to communicating with God. And so you think about how, how those four things fit together. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, which is, which is like anchoring them in truth. And God communicating with them like through that truth. They were devoted to prayer, which is them communicating back to God. And so between the apostles' teaching and prayer, there's like if, if you want to think of God, God up here and you're here, this, this is happening. You're, you're praying to him. He's communicating to you through his word. That the, the vertical back and forth is happening through the scriptures and through prayer. Scriptures and prayer. And the breaking of bread and the fellowship, that's going, that's going this way, right? That's tying them to one another. They're devoted to their brother, siblings in the Lord and the fact that like, we're living this life together. We're here to change the world together. And so the vertical is happening both ways and the horizontal is happening both ways. And all, all of those things are swirling all together, centered around this Christ-centeredness of every one of those things. And that is changing their lives. It is changing their world. And every single day, God brought more people in. They devoted themselves to those things. And God used all of them to shape them and transform them and to to bring that kind of generosity to the streets. And people saw it and they said, something different is happening here. I want more. I want to know what's happening. And they said, come on, come on, come on, come on. And it grew and it grew and it grew. And it grew to the point where the government started to squash it. And Rome came in and all the Jewish persecution kicked in and everything got really crazy and they basically eventually scattered out and they all went back home. And all that did was spread the gospel faster into more places. And then yada, 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 here we are. This is our origin story, all of this. And if we're reading this and we're looking at it, we're like, I, I want God to do that again. I got great news for you. He's on board with that request and he's already begun it. 
You just in walking with Christ, the truth of the apostles teaching has already formed you and shaped you. The people of God in the fellowship have already been used to form you and to shape you. The breaking of bread has already been used to form you and shape you. And the prayer that you have, prayers that you offer to God have already been used to form you and shape you. It's already happening. The longer you walk with Christ, you are a more generous person than you were when you started. You are more grounded in truth than when you started. That's, that's the nature of what he's doing. My, my prayer is that we would all be so devoted, so all in on this, that our lives would look so counterculturally different, that people would just watch us live and want to know more. And yes, are we, are we like sharing the gospel with them? Of course. Are we like telling them about who Jesus is? Absolutely. But to the point where just sheer observation and curiosity leads people into the fold, I mean, that would, to me, that, that would just, man, that'd be incredible. And I say all of that not because I don't think it's happening, because I know it's happening. I've, I've lived within this community long enough to know. I just, I, I want us to, to keep, to keep at it, you know. I, I read a, a sermon that, that went probably where you maybe assumed I was going to go for a second, which is like, why isn't this happening among us? And that drives me crazy. I hate that. I can't stand bashing on the church. I'm all for, like us, like being honest about refinement and shortcomings, but I can't stand it when people are like, oh, the, the church, this, the church, that, whatever. But I, there's a sermon and kind of came down to the same thing of like, what, what's the difference? And he went back to verse 43. And this is the last thing I have to say. He went back to verse 43. Starts off, it says, and awe came upon every soul. He said he thought that that plays a bigger role than we realize. Awe. So that our, our awe is misplaced a lot of the time. Like we become enamored with our own money or careers or possessions or our kids, our schedules, our busyness, our hobbies, you know, politics, LSU football, maybe certain times of the year. Like our, we, we have this awe and we try to spread it out among all these things really, really evenly. And there's one thing we know about awe is that you don't have enough of it to go around. The more widespread it is, it just weakens everything. But for them, they were in awe of the fact that God held out to them this amazing opportunity and said, hey, I'm at work in your midst. Do you want to be a part of it? And they said, yes, we're fully devoted to it. And I think that's an interesting point of process that maybe we could take with us from this morning is is our awe properly placed or have we accidentally placed it on other things that aren't deserving of awe even things that are really important like some of those things on the list I just rattled through are super important but are the focal point of our awe God's the only one worthy of that. And what he's doing in our midst is worthy of that.
what he's doing in our church, in your individual life, if you are married, in your marriage, if you have a family within your family, within your friend group, like what he's doing not only internally but also externally, those things are worthy of awe because he is in them. So, take away with from this what you will. But I love the fact that God is very clear of his dreams and hopes and intentions for his bride. If you want to know what's driving us at Living Hope, this is one of the passages that drives us into the things that we do and why we do it. Not because we think it's a new vision. We're trying to take this perfect old vision and walk it out. Where did the, these 3,100 learn it from? Well, they learned it from the 120. Where'd they learn it from? They learned it mostly from the 12 who learned it from Jesus himself. It's just the way of Jesus being passed down. I hope this is an encouragement to us this morning. I hope it challenges us. Let's stand together. As we sing and place our all correctly in the right place. Join me as I pray. Jesus, I know we're, we're uh, very easily distracted. I know that we look at that, that first century lifestyle and we look at what was happening, the festival of Pentecost as they were gathered together. It's so easy to be dismissive of a paragraph like this and say, well, that was, they didn't have all the stuff going on in life that I did, that I do at the moment. And the truth is they had a lot, they had a lot more going on actually. It's not, it's not about a comparison kind of thing. It's about looking at what your apostles taught these disciples to do as they just pass on the ways of Jesus to this next generation. I'm so thankful that they took you seriously, God, that they were in awe of who you are and what you are holding out to them, and that they said yes, and they believed you, and they, they let you be formed and shaped. Would you help us to be the same way? If that's already the posture of hearts and minds uh, that are here today, I pray that that would be an encouragement to them. For those who've drifted away from that, could this be a return? You know, and for those who are here or who are listening who have just never really, never really gotten all that straight with you in the first place, may this be the day of salvation for them. And so, God, we come to you this morning. Asking for a deeper, more full sense of awe that would lead to a life given to your activity among us and the things you've given us that form us and shape us. And so as we sing or pray or just respond to what's going on in our hearts and minds, as we give these final moments to you, may you have your way among us.